Hello, my name is Gary Bontrager. I am the host of Mindset Growth Podcast. I have Heather Mullinex, my co-host here with me today. Uh, we are excited for this next guest. Uh, Heather, this is someone that uh, immediately caught my attention just based off of the uh, work that he does. And because I feel like so often when we're injured, we know that we broke an arm and something has happened and that's something that needs medical attention. Right. But there's a lot of, uh, in our country, I feel, and probably in the entire world, when it comes to mental health and addictions and things like that, often it's something that's on the inside and people don't see. So that's so very well to keep hidden. It is very, well, I wouldn't say it's easy to keep hidden, but it seems easy for the person that's involved with it. So with that, I want to welcome Craig Kramer. You've got a storied uh, work history, but I think the most important and thing that catches my attention is what you do today. So with that, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, saw a little, well, or maybe a lot of your resume, and it's it's truly impressive. So go as far back as you'd like to. Tell us how you grew up. Just give us a quick snapshot yeah. of that. So I, I grew up in Michigan, a family of five boys, um, in the only place in North America where you can look south across the river and see Canada. Uh, yes. So Geography. Yep. It's, it's below the thumb and, and Ontario comes out. And that did, that did a couple of things for me that I think uh, connects everything that's happened to me ever since in terms of career. And first of all, it made me aware that conventional wisdom is not always 100% correct. <laughs> so it gave me an inquisitive sort of uh, challenging mindset. And the other thing is I, you know, I, I was grew up very internationally. We played ice hockey across the the uh, border into Canada. And um, so I, I grew up knowing that America wasn't the only place that was great. Um, but but I, it gave me this curiosity about international. And so, you know, my career has taken me all over the globe. Um, and er in the early years, there, there was really no design to this. But every time an international issue was raised, you know, came up, I would raise my hand and volunteer to take it on. And before you know it, I, I had more knowledge about international affairs than most people, and and it became sort of a snowball. Um, and then the other piece of it was always asking open-ended questions and trying to understand other people's perspectives before I inserted my own biases and you know my own assumptions about how the world works as a, as a you know American, a white male, uh, Michigander. Um, and those two characteristics have kind of led me successfully along the way. Um, and my latest, um, you know, change was out of kind of law and business and into the mental health advocacy. And that was the um, story that LinkedIn News picked up. Uh, they thought it was a good example of somebody repurposing their career. Um, and we can talk a little bit about what goes into that background, but I thought that your comments at the beginning are exactly right. I mean, almost everybody I've met has a story, either themselves or somebody that they love, somebody in their family who is dealing with a mental health challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, we often keep it hidden. There's often hard to find kind of support you need. And frankly, the science in this area is not where it needs to be. Um, and so those are some of the things that we've tried to address. Awesome. And we will definitely get into that with you. It's, it sounds very intriguing and something that our, our listeners would like to hear about. But first, we'd like to kick off some rapid fire questions with you, questions that you haven't seen, kind of get us um, loosened up and get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. What time of day are you most productive? Morning. Do you have a morning routine? I do. I, I um, you know, I, I follow the Navy SEALs directive and I make my bed uh, unless my wife <laughs> is still in it. Then I'll, I'll come back later and get that going. The idea being that it, no matter how bad a day it is, if you start out with one good act and then you come back at the end of the day and say, oh, my gosh, the bed's made. Yeah. It wasn't such a lost day. Um, and then I, I work out. Now, that that's changed over the years. I mean, when I had young kids. Um, morning was really getting them up and out, you know, to uh -huh. school and so forth. 
and then you try to squeeze in a run before dinner. Yep. Uh, but nowadays, I, I get up and the first thing I do is is uh, get a good workout in, and then uh, you know hit the Zoom and whatever else is going on that day. That's interesting. We find that successful people almost always have a morning routine, with the exception of when they have small children. So, uh, <laughs> and then it's then they attempt, but it's kind of on their schedule of what what happens at that point. So we're going to get to the next rapid fire question for you on your first day of president, what would you do? So first day as president, Oh my gosh, we have so many challenges. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, I, so I probably one domestic and one international. Um, and um, I, I think long-term the, the big challenge for us is China. Yep. I would. I don't know exactly what I do in that front, but um, it's it's a difficult time because we both need to confront and 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 and, and urge China in new directions, but we also have to engage with them because we're so intertwined. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of time in China, know a lot of the leadership there. So I think foreign policy wise, that would be the first step. Keeping in mind that we've got to we've got to uh, stop this uh, invasion of Ukraine too in right. the short term. You'd have um, a very busy full day. Yeah. So domestically, <laughs> boy, I, mean, it, it, I think the most troubling aspect now is the polarization of politics. But you probably aren't going to get to be president if you don't exploit that yes. at some level to your advantage. Yes. So you probably made the problem worse. Uh, um, and I'm not sure there's much that a leader could do. So I, right. um, I think you know, right now the probably the biggest challenge is uh, is uh, you know, economic inequality, and then you know, for the part that I deal with is the homelessness. Right. Mm. Um, a lot of you know, I think the recent studies show that most homeless people are there because they can't afford housing anymore. Um, there's a big component of drug addiction too, but um, so I, I think I'd want to try to address that. And in every major city now, this is a top issue of the new mayors coming, and so right. Well, let's see what we can do national level. <laughs> and. To speak on that, I just fire answer, but a good question. <laughs> uh, I've I've been to D.C. We've been past the White House, and we saw that gigantic um, homeless, the homeless tent city. I guess you could call it, but that is right there at, at D.C.'s front doorstep. So yeah, that would be a good one to try to dig into on the first day. You know, one thing that. Uh... I don't think any of us want 9-11 back, but I think there's a lot of things from 9-12 we would like back. And it might summarize a little bit of what you're saying on the domestic front. Uh, there was a lot of unity, uh, you know, following that event and just seeing how it seemed like the entire country realized how we need to support each other. And that was a positive day. But I don't really want to get into politics. That's not what <laughs> yeah, this, right, right. that's not what this uh, podcast is really about. But uh, let's go for a lighter one then. Yes, do All it. All right, last rapid fire here. What is your favorite hobby? Ice hockey. Ice hockey. You stuck with it. I was. So gonna... I, yeah, I, I started playing almost before I could walk in Michigan, and um, I still play a couple times a week now. And my whole right. exercise regimen is designed to keep me doing that as long as I can. I, just played a tournament a couple of weekends ago up in Breckenridge at 10,000 feet elevation. Ooh. Yeah, Colorado, here in Colorado. And um, yeah, I did, I did all right. It was an old, it was an old man's uh, tournament. <laughs> I fit right in. Softball is kind of the big thing in our, uh, like when I was growing up that we played, we did play some ice hockey, but it was farm ponds and things like that. And so I never, but I know any of my friends that live at the northern part of the United States, and then especially Canada, that was just huge, was that ice hockey. And so I enjoyed it. It's been years since I've done it, though. Uh, I understand just we were doing a little research to figure out, you know, some of the different things and learn about you a little bit. Uh, growing up, as far as I, I, you know, what was your family like and what was in that component that prepared you to go off and go to school at Harvard? And I just am taking that from what I could see online. I, I'm going to believe that's where you went out of high school. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting story. I'm, there are actually many strands to the answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll just pick on one here. Um, so my mother uh, 
was raised a Finnish Lutheran. Her family's from Finland originally. Oh. A very big community in Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin, that area. Um, and um, she uh, was a bit of a rebel, I guess, and she ended up marrying a Roman Catholic man. <laughs> now, I didn't really appreciate how big a deal this was till I went and visited Finland and the Scandinavian countries where Lutheranism is, is very prominent. Um, but when the when Martin Luther, remember that whole thing? He tapped, he put the ninety five theses on the church door. Yep. And they were sort of his questions about the Catholic Church at that time. The establishment, the Catholic Church, did what all establishments do: it tried to protect itself by by running these renegades out of town and and worse. Um, and so, five hundred years later, there's still a lot of hard feelings both ways. I think about. The treatment and and the you know, the 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 behavior and the things that people did. Um, so when my mother, uh, and it was really more her crossing the aisle than my dad. I mean, you when you're the you know you're the establishment, you're not crossing the aisle the other way right. necessarily. Um, but but in coming, you know, in breaking five hundred years of sort of antagonism, my mother really took a risk and a gamble and. Got a little bit of heat from her family and you know relatives and things like that. Ultimately, very supportive. Um, but the reason that it was it was so important to me is that you know I I I I was born in a house that was very loving, and had this deep roots of history that we're bringing together. Now my parents married in '57. At that time, Catholics were viewed as um, it's not the brightest people in the country. You know, they kind of followed the leader the lead of the Pope. They didn't really think for themselves. Was the common idea and so the lutherans were that was one of the critiques of catholicism but then in 1960 we elected the first uh catholic president john f kennedy and i i was asking my mother about this just the other day how did that change your sense of self that you know now you're on the winning team you know so yeah. all of a sudden not just the biggest team but the winning team um and she uh said it didn't really change it that much but i do know that um Years later, when I had a chance to uh, get a scholarship to a boarding school where John F. Kennedy had gone to school, um, and the letter came home, and my mother opened it and just burst into tears that I was going to be going to the same school that JFK went to. Um, and so I ended up at a prep school, a private school, Choate, uh, Rosemary Hall in Connecticut. Um, and that took me from whatever trajectory I was on before into a whole new you know, arena because you're you're going to school with the the sons and daughters of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the country and really in the world. People from all over the world go there now. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I kept my head above water long enough to 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 be able to go to college after that. So that was in uh, high school, or was that like years? That was high school, yeah, that high school. High yeah. school. So you moved away from your family to go to high school. Yeah, and I, 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 what got me in was the ice, ice hockey. I was a goaltender. I was a pretty good goaltender, and um, the head of admissions was the hockey coach. And you know, one thing led to another. So it worked um, out. Excellent. Yeah, it worked out well. And a couple of years, yeah, you know, my senior year, I got elected student body president. Okay. Uh, which was not something that any of us would have expected, I think. But um, that then you know created a sort of leadership mindset that. Um, had had I really yeah I'd sort of had but not really up to, until that point and then it was right. an opportunity to lean into that a little bit more and, and go to some fancy places and mm -hmm. as my dad says you know you've taken us a lot of places we never would have been <laughs> uh, you're welcome dad kids will do that won't they <laughs> so it, did you attend attend law school. Through Harvard, or how did you uh, well, end up? Well, so I went to actually went to Princeton undergrad, and then I went to, uh, um, uh, um, and then I went to Michigan Law School and back home for law school. Okay, and then uh, later went to Harvard Business School. So, how did you find yourself in D.C. working as an attorney? Correct. Yes, so I, I got out of law school. I, I had this. Yeah, I really liked. Yeah, you know, I wanted to be, you know, not not a Kennedy per se, but I wanted to be involved in the political process. And so I went to Washington. I worked for a, a law firm that was very politically connected. I went and worked on the Hill for about five years. Um, 
uh, at a very interesting time. It was right after uh, Clinton was elected the first time. There was a lot of a lot of change going on and a lot of big legislative uh, initiatives. Um, and then um, when my party lost its majority in the Congress, so we no longer were able to write the laws, we were just standing around complaining all the time. <laughs> uh, I, I got a call from a headhunter for Johnson & Johnson, and all I knew was Band-Aids, honestly. <laughs> So uh, they they hired me to be their international um, policy person, uh, the first one. Um, and by the time I left, we had 300 people working on international policy. That company oh. is, I mean, they're a worldwide company and do, do a lot yeah. more than Band-Aids. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware of all that. But that was a lot of transition. And you were with that company quite a while, which kind of puts you in the position you are today. What was that experience like? Because uh, I guess that's really why I, you know, we we started in the beginning with the mental health aspect. When you were going to school and in law, dealing with, you know, doing law and things like that, mental health was that something you were aware of or you had interest in, or is it something that became personal and that's where it developed from? I, I had a little bit of experience. Um... You know what? What you find when you when you take the blinders off is that it's all around you. You know, you right. you have a, you have lots of relatives and siblings and, and even parents who have been struggling uh, to to stay afloat and mm -hmm. without the right tools and support. But once you see it, you, you know you can't unsee it, and you start you re realizing that it's everywhere. Um, but you know, no, at the time I didn't realize that I that I or anybody else in my family had any. Or any of my friends had, uh, you know, any mental health issues. There, there was the occasional suicide, you know, that you just didn't really understand. Um, we did at, at Princeton at college. We had a um, uh, peer counseling training program, so you could train to be a peer counselor. And that, that was my first introduction to some of the uh, tips and tricks of how to stay mentally healthy and how to how to ward off. Um, mental illness, uh, you know, whether it's insomnia or, uh, you know, eating disorders or, uh, you know, obsessive thinking, negative thinking, uh, but nothing that really, you know, changed the course of my life. It's just little tools that I took on and allowed me to be kind of balanced and healthy and resilient. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until much later that it became a turning point for me. So go ahead. I, I, yeah, so I, I spent the First 20 years, I was there for 24 years at J&J, &J, but first 18 years, um, traveling the world, setting up these government affairs offices, um, starting, in, frankly, in China and um, Japan, kind of the big emerging places where we thought we could have an impact on healthcare policy. It's a healthcare company. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know anything about healthcare to, you know, to begin with. I still know less than most of the people there, but I knew how to work with governments to Yes. Uh, partner and create policy changes. Um, and we worked on cancers. We worked on diabetes, obesity, uh, obviously infant and maternal care because of the baby component of Johnson & Johnson. The, the last big project I had before I, I really leaned into the mental health space was on HIV. Um, at that time, millions of people were dying a year, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and the world community was really galvanized around trying to solve that problem. We were in a position to, to make a difference. We had some uh, new medicines coming out, and we knew a lot about healthcare delivery around the world. Um, we also knew about building coalitions to change policy. And so I, I was involved in that for a couple of years. And at the time uh, that we, uh, you know, HIV was a, and AIDS was a death sentence. Today, because of all those collective efforts, it's, it's a chronic illness. You can live with it for the rest of your life. Um, and there are actually some vaccines now that will make it preventable, which is an amazing uh, quick turnaround in, in less than 20 years. Right. No, that's amazing. I uh, uh, went, Going through all those steps, that was all. So you were working in foreign relations completely in that component. And then to transition to where you're at, you ended up at, though, that required a lot of travel at that point, right? So you've probably traveled the world quite a, quite a bit during that period when you were at that part with J&J? &J. 
Yeah, I and I I was flying out of Newark, New Jersey. United is a hub there, and I was uh, one day I was getting on the flight, and they handed me a handwritten letter from the CEO thanking me for my business. I was one of the top five flyers Ouch. on United here. <laughs> And you know, looking back, that was a sign that I was traveling way too much for my family's well-being. But um, yeah, I was flying all corners of the world. It was really a, a it was a fun, interesting, challenging, meaningful, uh, you know, time where I think we made a difference on a number of fronts. Were you able to take family or do vacations and take family to some of those places you found that were interesting? Yeah, I, I took my kids to. Uh, my boys like soccer, so we we uh, did uh, Europe and England, and uh, we actually went to the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. Oh, my, wow. my daughter, yeah, uh, is more adventurous, so we went to India, China, uh, Japan, and really immersed ourselves in the culture. Wow. Like my my kids are my my ex wife is Korean, and and so my kids are Korean American, uh, and so they, uh, they they love to travel. And, right. That's a uh, that's always fun. I feel like I have spent too much time being busy and just working sometimes to really do the travel, but it's coming up soon. So did that take you a while to realize that that um, all right, I need somewhat of a work life balance here. Let's take the kids and the family along with us. Well, I, I think because you know, looking back, because of that training I got in, in, in undergraduate for. Uh, peer counseling, how to be mentally, how, how to take care of your mental health. Um, I, I think I was always pretty well balanced. I think my friends always came to me for advice on how to keep that balance. And I was always very aware of when my anxiety or my fatigue or depression was starting to emerge and, and I knew how to dial back. And um, now, um, you know, you did we do it perfectly? Did my, shall I spend more time at home? Probably yes. What's uh, so? Let's go ahead. Uh, let's move forward on the mental health side of things uh, because what I was reading and what the article that caught my attention was the one where you talked about uh, basically Johnson and Johnson letting you go, and it was just because of the effects of how it was, what was happening elsewhere, how that affected your career. And, you know, once they understood the situation, which quite frankly tells me something, at least about the leadership of the company at the time, that they would take that information and create a new position, realizing probably this impacts other families as well. So how, I mean, was that kind of a blank slate for you to come back in and now build out something new in this company? And what was the process to work through it as a parent too? I mean, I'm kind of throwing a couple things so you can break this down however you want uh, to work through with a child that's, you know, got some things there that they need to work through as well. Yeah, there, there was a lot going on in our family. And I, um, the, the day that I was brought in and told that my position was being eliminated. Um, so there, there was a, a little bit of a reorganization going on in my department. Um, I was not the only one affected, but you know, in subsequent conversations, it was clear that there had been a performance sense that I was distracted. Uh, but around that, the day that I was called into and told my position was eliminated, that was the third worst thing to happen to me that day. Mm. <laughs> uh, my one of my children uh, was coming out of an inpatient psychiatric uh, situation, which was very critical, and then. Um, the other one was getting into a very critical situation that day, which we discovered that evening. Um, and um, so it, all hell was breaking yes. loose, you know. Um, and I actually didn't tell my wife for a whole week that I, I my position was being eliminated because we were dealing, you know, front and center with these other other crises in the family. Yeah. And it would have just been a, a, a distraction and a depression, you know, to, Think that on top of everything else, you might be out of health insurance soon, you know. <laughs> so, um, but as Gary pointed out, um, I, you know, I was a fairly senior executive at J and J, so I went to the the leadership there and said, you know, I, I think I still have more to give, and um, and we had just come out this HIV uh, campaign, and mental health looked to me a lot like HIV. There was a lot of stigma around talking about it and, and asking for help. 
when you did ask for help, the system was was incapable of giving you the help you needed. And then the science was, at, even today, mental health is way behind where it should be. It has not progressed the way that HIV has, or even think about COVID, how quickly we came up with vaccines to combat right. and other antivirals, other treatments to deal with that. Um, so it, it looked to me a lot like what we'd been through. And um, that was the proposal that we kind of put on the table. And, and um People thought that was a good thing to try. Yeah, I think they, none of us really knew how successful it was going to be. Um, but we we started thinking we would look externally and try to help everybody else out, um, just the way we like we do with HIV. But very quickly, our employees uh, started knocking on my door and sending me emails and calling me and um, telling me their personal stories. And by uh, three months after we got started, we had a thousand volunteers among our employees. So we we realized that we had to help our employees out too. Yeah. And so we we ended ended up initiating a lot of uh, programs and and collaborations around that. That had, um, and just one example there. So we um, all the big employers, whether they're governments or corporations or nonprofits, have these employee resource groups. Right. For LGBTQ, for African Americans, women, veterans, you know, the, and we decided we would form a an, an employee resource group for people who live with mental illness, either as a patient themselves, which is about one out of four employees, or as a caregiver, which is about two out of four employees. It's just about everybody, right? Um, and we didn't realize it at the time, but it was the first one, the first affinity group of its kind in the world. No one else had ever done it. Um, but it, because of the number of employees came for it seemed obvious to us. And part of what we spent the last couple of years doing was going out to other uh, employee groups and other employees around the world, other companies, governments, and teaching them how to set up these groups. So now there's hundreds, if not thousands, of these of these mental health groups. And uh, I'm still getting calls today from companies saying, hey, we'd like to do this. Um, and so we now have this mass movement of people trying to raise awareness, uh, improve their company policies around mental health, improve insurance coverage, which is a big challenge for people. Yeah. But that's just one example of the kinds of things that just took off uh, and that we certainly didn't plan for. We want to thank Gary Bontrager Consulting for being a sponsor on the Mindset Growth Podcast. There's a variety of services they offer. They have human resources for one. They have a sales program. They also work with the financials, whether you need to help set up your QuickBooks or go with a high level person that can help you do benchmarking, budgeting, and the likewise. They also do a lot of leadership training, whether you are the business owner, manager, or are just leaders in departments. They can tailor those packages for you. Reach out to them for a free consult and they will see what your needs are and offer different opportunities for you to put in motion to take your business to the next level. They have been successful over the past few years in helping organizations not only grow, but grow as much as two, three, and 400% in a 12 month period. Certainly, they understand it takes a strong foundation and there are years where there may be no growth leading up to this as they put the right pieces in place. Reach out to them at www.garybontrager.com. You can reach out to them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter and get the free advice that they offer. And that may be just what you need to set you on a different path to lead you forward and be successful in your business and your life. We appreciate them supporting us. So uh, do you work like as in a coach capacity now, helping these companies set, set up these policies? So you're like a freelance basically coming in? Now, while I was at J&J, so I, re I retired at the end of last year. Um, while I was there, I, it was part of my uh, self written job description to go out and talk to these other employers and, and uh, you know, at no cost because, uh, frankly, we, we knew that if all of our employees stood up and asked for care, the system wasn't ready for us. Mm -hmm. So we needed all these allies to go out and, and force the system to change and demand 
better better care. Um, so part of taking care of ourselves is making sure everybody else was joining us. Um, so, uh, but but now I, uh, I I continue to be involved with a number of uh, nonprofits and other initiatives. Uh, probably the most important one right now is I'm co-chairing a, a group in Washington that includes the Surgeon General and other healthcare leaders and government and private sector. Um, uh, so like Kaiser Permanente is there, uh, but also Facebook because they are part of the mental health problem, but they're also part of the solution. They <laughs> yes, they, they often are the first ones to be able to identify, especially young people who are having, they, they own Instagram too, mm-hmm. but they're, they're able to, uh, I see people who are searching for ways to hurt themselves or searching for solutions. And so Facebook can then become the uh, a lifeline for people who are looking for help. So all those groups are around the table. We're trying to figure out how to solve this problem in the long term. So you say we're behind on this. A uh, question that comes to my mind is, I be, from and I am very limited. You have far more uh, information than I have. So I'm just taking this from a very elementary point of view. How do you get people to talk about it or recognize they need to ask for help? Because I, you say we're way behind. Is it from an education point of view? What needs to be done to elevate this to where it's okay to go ask for help? I mean, wh- what are you seeing there? So first, we have to talk about it more. I think the the simple answer there is more storytelling. Uh, if employers and, and especially senior executives, but also uh, rank and file people can tell their, feel comfortable telling their stories, you can create a psychologically safe environment where it's okay to talk about, you know, Gary, like you said at the beginning, you know, if you break your arm, you come up with your cast and you're right. telling about the story about how you broke your arm. And, um, well, you know, sometimes we get burned out or fatigued and, we ought to be able to come in and say, hey, this happened to me and, and this is what I did to recover. And, you know, I, I'm never going to do X again because clearly it's not good for me. But a little bit of humor is not is helpful. We, But we um, we really encouraged and we trained a lot of our ERG members to, in how to tell a mental health story, how to tell their mental health story so that they could normalize the conversation, help share some of the best practices, um, and uh, that that's very powerful. Storytelling is key. Um, and I, I, you know, you're starting to see a lot of celebrities like Michael Phelps and Lady Gaga, and well, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and others talk about their mental health journeys. And um, and, and but you're also seeing a lot of young people talk about it. Some some of the leading YouTubers have talked about their challenges. Um, we, you know, we all go through this, and so um, trying to normalize that conversation is number one. But then, as I say, if you if people go out to ask for help, then the system's got to be able to respond. And there's a lot of problems there, which we're all trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, most mental illness begins in, in youth. So the, the average age is 14. And so pediatricians have got to be able to uh, have to be trained in how to re- respond and identify and work with parents, schools. Um, but also, you know, a lot of people get to the workplace and haven't had any uh, mental health support. So we, we want to have uh, HR departments and uh, employee benefits that recognize that and support that, especially for the young people. And then the, the final thing is um, is the science. We just have such a long way to go. We need to invest more in that. And that can be as much a political commitment as anything else. Um so, so we're working on the stigma, the system, and the science, the three S's. Because I would say the stigma is something that's a real big issue for a lot of folks. Uh, but I guess another question, and I know there's a lot more people in the world today than there were, you know, years back. How do we, uh, uh, why, why are we dealing with this now? Is it just that 80 and 100 years ago, they didn't talk about it or they didn't even know what it really was? And today we do, and so now the awareness is coming up. Or is it something that, as times have changed, and you know, you'd mentioned Facebook, and I'm not knocking it; I'm on there every day. But it's, uh, you know, there's it's it, communication. Life just moves so much faster. You know, what what are are there some contributing factors? Well, this is where you want to talk to somebody who's got a PhD, but. Uh... <laughs> 
My, my observation uh, is that uh, this has been with us for all of humanity. Um, it, it crosses every culture, uh, race, uh, class. Um, I went to uh, Ethiopia uh, part of my my efforts here, and um, I, I talked to a rural doctor who said, well, we don't, you know, we're, we're not rich enough to have depression or, or postpartum depression in particular. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and moreover, our, our mothers are glad to be having babies. They're so happy. And we had a Stanford uh, 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 student come out and, and do a year-long study, and they found that the incidence of postpartum depression in rural Ethiopia was um, – 18.2%, which was exactly the same number as the United States. Huh. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it goes everywhere. There, there's a lot of debate right now about whether things are getting worse. Um, it's hard to separate out the pandemic, which I think, um, you know, I, I was in New Jersey at that time in Washington. We had a lot of death, a lot of unemployment. Um, and so there was a lot of trauma associated with that. I think in my sense is in places like Michigan and Iowa um, that were a little more, you know, buffered from the coast and where the, the pandemic came in first, there was, there was less of that. So, but I think all of us saw this dislocation. Our kids were home from school. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our families were compressed into smaller spaces, right? Um, um, so we all got a lot closer to this mental health issue. And I think it affected us. We're seeing this here in Colorado. Um, for the first time ever, the leading cause of death for uh, adolescents is now suicide, and I, yeah. it's connected to, I think, the pandemic and all the all the strains and stresses that people have been under. There's also this other dimension of, of the social media. You know, it, yeah. it tends to right. highlight all the the good stuff and the likes, right. and so you don't have a realistic perspective on right. the life as actually goes up and down. And also, kids are a little more you know, socially isolated, they don't have social connection, which is next to, so sleep, exercise, and social connection are the three things that are most important for your mental well-being. And if you're not used to having face-to-face conversations and, and you know, you're always, you know, you're obsessing about how you look and yeah. how people you perceive you, those things, but we're still trying to tease that out. How, how big an issue is that? Because social media does have a big upside for kids. It connects them. Right. To people like them, it, it gives them a chance to um, express themselves. So they're, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, but there's something going on that is intensifying what is already part of the human condition. You know, that's, that is interesting because I've got some friends and it was interesting how it hit just a slightly different age group of boys and girls and at what ages, and we're talking school age, you know, like middle school in there, how it has affected, how that isolation affected them because we've you know i've had some friends that have had to help have their kids kind of work through some of this and it's been a process because of that isolation and uh i find that interesting i think we'll learn a lot about that in the years going forward on how that affected all of us but uh i find also it interesting that and i can identify with uh the sleep and you said sleep social interaction and uh, exercise exercise for mental physical health, activity, yeah, yeah I mean. physical act- activity. So, uh, I just kind of want to point those three out. I think if there's anyone in the audience, especially we work a lot with business owners and business leaders, uh, back to the things that you learned that helped you stay sharp. You know, that's one of the things we talk about with those people is how do you stay mentally sharp? And it's just I kind of want to point those out. But I think the effects of COVID and the isolation is what's going to be interesting probably affect us more than anything else did. Having said that, it changed my business completely. And it honestly has helped the business community, I think, in a lot of ways, because we learned how to work effectively and be more efficient in how things got done and how communication happened. But uh, that physical connection is a component that I think now it becomes an object that companies are dealing with. How, How do you maintain that physical component and yet a lot of folks work from home and things are just different than they were yeah it leads to a better balance of your life you know you get to make the kids soccer games or uh, right. or volunteer locally you're not spending in my case spending an hour in the car each way to work um, 
um, so, and you know, and and I think we all learned that we don't need to travel as much as we used to. I mean, I, I'm sure that two thirds of the trips I used to take, I don't need to take anymore. I, I can do by Zoom. Right. At the same time, there is there is. I used to say ninety percent of my job was showing up, and you know, you can't really understand a place like China or Ethiopia if you don't really go there and spend right. some time with the people and right. See the the just the day to day. You can't get that on a Zoom. No. Make those connections, especially for new workers, young you know young workers entering the workforce. So uh, people are sorting that. I I do have a, a you know my teams were always international, so we were not co located. Um, but we would get together two weeks a year, you know, at each end of the year, and we'd be in a in a place where our families weren't around, our coworkers weren't around. So we might be in a different country or a um, or, you know, um, and that week together really helped us bond individually. Mm-hmm. We do all our strategic planning and our long range um, business planning, so that people knew how they were going to work together for the rest of the year. And I suspect that you know, I think that that can be replicated for every team. I'm, I'm, I don't think this idea of you know, three days a week, everybody has to be there. It's not working from what I've seen in the companies that I know, right. or even in the government. But the, but I think everybody appreciates that if you come together for a meaningful, I would do it a week at a time, interaction where you can really come together, mm-hmm. then you can go back and do the work and, and have those connections that are so important to doing work well and staying creative and, and uh, you know, making sure you're getting new ideas. Zoom My meetings. is where it's going to land. Yeah. <laughs> Zoom meetings help with the to kind of get your team on the same page but it's so easy to fall back on emails and sometimes those can just be misunderstood or taken you know out of context so i still think that like you said there is that component of face to face and and getting on the same page as as your coworkers i i i just don't think that that's going to go away <laughs> but um can you talk to us a little bit about what are some signs to look for? I, I know you said you had some training that goes back to uh, when you were at Princeton. Is that right? Um, but can you talk to us about what are some signs to look for and maybe ourselves or others that might suggest that we should reach out, look for help? Yeah, I, I think whether it's yourself or, or your family or, or your coworkers, um, you know, if you notice that somebody's not been sleeping well or they're a little more disheveled or they're more irritable, uh, their performance is not what it typically is, um, especially over a couple week period. Um, th- those are the signs you want to keep an eye out for. And then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, especially in America where we believe in individual ruggedness, you know, we we often don't want to embarrass somebody by asking them how mm-hmm. it's going. But the, the simple thing is just how are you doing? Like not, not the one you in the hallway when you. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. No, sit down, especially when you have a one-on-one with your direct reports or your supervisors and say, you know, really, how's it going? We've, got, we've been through a tough period in the business and society and politics, whatever it is, family. You know, how are you managing this? How is your emotional strength and results? Where, where can we support you before we jump into, you know, the latest project and deadlines and things like that? Just how you doing? But really listen and mean it. The work that you do now is mostly like working with uh, nonprofits and things like that to raise awareness. How would people find you and how do they find maybe areas in, or sp- places in their own communities where they can jump in and support this cause and help people if they'd want to? What should they be looking for there? Well, I, I think if, if you, uh, no matter where you work, I would encourage you to organize uh, people in, in your workplace around this mental health issue, whether it's through an employee resource group or mm-hmm. uh, working with your HR department to have awareness events, you know, just try to have the conversation, normalize it. Everybody's affected and it's it's already sapping our productivity. So it, it's smart business to address this and, and get people support. Um, it's one out of four workers have a diagnosable condition. That means that there's probably another one or four who are Maybe not at the clinical level of, of mental distress, but they're in a place of difficulty. They, and you, you know, we can help them. We have the tools. It's pretty common now. So um, it, it's normalizing that and get, getting people help and not stigmatizing, not saying, oh, 
that person's losing it. We're going to, you know, let them go from the company. Right. Because you, you can't fire your way out of this problem. Yeah. First of all, and you, you lose a lot of talent. Um, and, and that's one point I, I would also make is um, we found that uh, young people coming out of universities and online communities are, are talking very openly about this. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to go back in the closet. Right. Yeah. And so we started talking about it when we went on recruiting visits. You know, come to Johnson & Johnson because, look, we get it. We're all on uh-huh. the mental spectrum. But you can come to us. We can talk about it. We can get you what you need. Um, it, it's going to be just like it was where you're, you're, you're high school or, or university. Um, and and then we're also trying to change the world in this area. So come be part of that. Um, because a lot of these kids are worried that if they go to a place, that they have to hide their mental issues, which we all have to some degree, that they're going to get worse and it's not going to be good for them or their employer. So, um, you know, we, we use it as a recruiting tool, frankly. And this generation, not just in the U.S., but around the world, understands this issue better than, than you know, my generation does. And they're looking for employers who get that and are going to tap into it as, as a recruiting strength. Um, and then the, the last thing I tell students who have mental illness in their family is, uh, you, by virtue of having struggled with this, you have the leadership qualities we're looking for. Mm. Most organizations are looking for servant leaders, people who can, who have uh, humility. And if you've got mental illness in your family, you, you know you're not perfect. You, they're looking for servant leaders have empathy. They're able to really understand other people's pain. And if you've gone through this at all, you you can recognize it across the room. And you know how to talk about it. Servant leaders are also really open to innovation and new ideas that they don't think they have all the answers. And, you know, as we've described this mental health journey, it is, there is no simple answer. You've really got to think outside the box um, and hack, you know, the system, the culture, the values, the stigma. And then the last thing is that uh, servant leaders have grit. And anybody who's been dealing with mental illness and their family, and again, it's most of us, it knows what grit is about. It's sticking with it, you know, fighting through it, having bad days, looking for the good days. So I always tell the students, look, if, you, if you've been dealing with this, either in your own life or in your family, uh, you've already got the leadership qualities we're looking for. You, you, you kind of have already taken the advanced placement course in leadership. So come on over and help us solve these other problems beyond mental health. That's interesting. I think so often, too, uh, we look at certain things as failures and breaking points that are just breaking us down. Uh, I like to a lot of times talk about how take take those negative experiences and leverage them, and let's use that to learn. And it's only a failure if you choose not to learn from it. So uh, it really resonates with me what no, we, you're saying. We did a lot of work with the with the military leadership, and um, I learned from them, and then subsequently from. Um, university academics that whenever there's a traumatic event, uh, uh, roughly eight to 10% of the population will develop PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, right? Mm-hmm. That's in the military, that's in civilian society. But what 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 we often forget in the, in the military and the academics are now really focusing on is that 90% of us have a post-traumatic growth of, uh, process. So if you're, most of us are going to actually grow out of, out of adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important to remember and to lean into that if, that's, if you're that fortunate 90%. But the, the, the 10% who are struggling more, again, they're developing leadership skills of their own, Gary, to your point, that right. their, their uh, difficulty is going to lead to growth later on and, and, and in many ways stronger leadership and more empathetic leadership. You know, one of the things with the name of the podcast kind of tells the story of what the stories are we like to get into and share. And so we get a lot of guests on that have been through difficult situations. I mean, no different Mm -hmm. than yours. Not only were you dealing with problems at home, now you've got to go back and try to negotiate employment as well and have the frame of mind to do that, which you could fall back on prior training. I'm sure that you did to help you with that process. I have not one time yet had a guest that has said we went through a hard time 
And once it's over, the things they learned and overcame out of that say that they regret going through it. They're always like, now we know why. Mm -hmm. And it's usually to help other people, which is uh, for myself. And I think a lot of people I see really helps with mental health is if we can get focused on serving others and helping the needs of others rather than focusing on ourselves. You know, when we focus inward, a lot of times it drags us down. So um, there's different reasons but those ex that people experience things, but the reaction to those is incredible. And you're exactly right. And I like the idea of the 90%, how they also grow out of that PTSD experience that they had. So pretty incredible uh, way to look at it. So anything else you'd like to leave listeners? Uh, just any maybe tips or something? Well, I, you know, my favorite leadership quote is Nelson Mandela, who said that a, a leader is like a shepherd, um, allowing the more nimble members of the flock to run out ahead and find uh, greener pastures. And then, and then the leader steers the group towards those Pastors, and I, and I think for leaders today and the complexities that we face, uh, we don't have the answers, but our teams do, or our teams can right. develop mm -hmm. those. So having that ability to listen and understand um, not only people's ideas, but their emotional uh, histories and their family histories and how that informs their perspective and, and having an appreciation for that diversity um, and then bringing that diversity to bear on the solution is, is to me, the the... the essential leadership skill of our time and so I, I you know to me the work that i do in mental health is rooted in unleashing this greater potential so where do people find you if they want to follow you they listen to this and want to kind of keep up with yeah, you i think the work. easiest thing is linkedin um craig kramer um and uh, a lot of my talks are on their their podcast interviews and things like that if people want to just see what that's about but um um, and then I'm this National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention is a, a the group that I co-chair in D.C. that's trying to uh, reform uh, mental health care in the country. Um, you know, we're always looking for new ideas and new partners. And Awesome. Well, hopefully through this, we can get the word out a little bit more for you and somebody will step up and uh, get involved and assist. And if not, it'll help at the at the grassroots level with people maybe understanding and taking the steps they need. So with that, Craig, we really appreciate you joining us on Mindset Growth Podcast. Uh, and we want to thank you, the audience, for listening to us. If you like this episode, please hit the like button and hit subscribe so that you can get notifications on all our episodes. We appreciate you. Uh, drop some comments and questions and we will respond and answer your questions as well. Thanks for watching Mindset Growth Podcast.